Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Dr Kat Arney, and with Dr Helen Scales. Hello. We're standing in while Chris is off sunning himself somewhere. In the news this week on the show, we'll be finding out how eating glycerol could lead to a longer life, but only if you're a yeast. We'll be discovering the answer to the mystery of the giant shark. Where do they go? We'll be discovering how scientists are probing the secrets of space and how gut bacteria could be the key to beating malaria. That's not all, Helen. Thanks, Kat. Also this week, we'll be plunging into my most favourite environment and taking a look at the watery world of clean water. We'll be hearing about a big clean-up in the River Cam and learning about the importance of digging new ponds from the lovely gardener Alan Titchmarsh. It is so simple, you can do it in an afternoon. Make a small pond, take charge of it, make it clean, and you think, well, hang on a minute, how am I going to introduce all that wildlife to it? You don't have to, it will come. The most astonishing thing is that all that wildlife finds you of its own accord. Doesn't he just make it sound gorgeous? And even though all that wildlife will find its own way to your pond, sometimes these visitors can be unwelcome. So also on the show this week, we'll be finding out about alien invaders that are attacking our waterways. Sounds scary and a bit like the day of the Triffids all over again. All that's coming up in the next hour, plus the delightful Diana O'Carroll brings us a jumbo-sized question of the week. And if you want to try your hand at this week's watery kitchen science at home, you'll need to dig out your old soda stream or soda siphon from all that junk at the back of the kitchen cupboard, you know, where the deep fat fryer and the ice cream machine is. Get it out. Uh, to find out what to do with it, stay tuned to The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, researchers in the US have discovered that living on a diet made up solely of glycerol could double your lifespan. But that's only if you're a yeast. Um, now, previous studies have found that severely restricting the amount of calories you eat can double the lifespan of yeast. But in this new research published in the journal PLOS Genetics, Walter Longo and his team have found a rather more filling alternative. Now, they tried feeding glycerol to yeast after they discovered that yeast that had been genetically engineered to have a long lifespan also showed increased activity of genes that produce and metabolise glycerol. Now, these yeasts have low activities of a molecular pathway known as TOR1, which is thought to be important for extending their lifespan in many different animals, yeast, worms, mice. Yeast aren't an animal, don't write in. Uh, anyway, at the moment, this discovery only applies to yeast, but it's certainly intriguing. Now, Longo suggests that it may be possible to extend even the lifespan of a human by changing the makeup of the carbohydrates in our diet, the fuel that we metabolise. And we know from uh, previous studies that extreme calorie cutting can extend human lifespan, though, mind you, who would want to live a long life without cake so perhaps changing the energy sources in the diet may also have an effect on lifespan so quite an interesting little story there excellent stuff all from one tiny creature that may not be an animal to one that definitely is one of the largest animals in the world and that is the 
giant basking shark, the second largest shark in the world. And how on earth do you think you might lose one of these creatures? Well, that is exactly what has happened up until very recently. We've had no idea at all where basking sharks disappear to in the winter because they they disappear from the waters of, uh, of the West Atlantic and also in other parts of their range in the east. And no one knew where they went until Gregory Scomal from the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries in the US led a team of scientists who went out and tagged 25 of these great giants off the New England coast. Let me guess, they're down the back of the sofa. <laughs> That's where everything goes. It probably... In a, in a way, yes, the ocean equivalent of the back of the sofa. If Well, no, no, sorry, Kat. But um, it's actually, they found them swimming thousands um, in, of miles to the south into the tropics, which is another great big um, revelation, really, because we always thought before that basking sharks only lived in cooler, temperate waters. And now they've been found in the Caribbean Sea. Some of them even crossed um, over the equator into the Amazon River Basin towards the on the coast of uh, Brazil. And uh, we know all this because these, these um, satellite tags that, uh, they had been uh, tagged with, I suppose, yes, were beaming back all this information and showing where these creatures were going to. And no, not down the back of the sofa, but in parts of the world where we really haven't seen them before. And the big question is, the big mystery is, why are they going all that way? It's an awfully long way to go. Well, the researchers think it's probably it's something to do with temperature, something to do with food availability, maybe. That's one of the theories. But then why do they keep going on past Florida? Because once they get to Florida, it's nice and warm. There's lots of food for them in the wintertime, and that's the plank on. These aren't scary creatures that are going to eat you. Basking sharks eat tiny, tiny creatures called plankton and zooplankton. So maybe there's something else going on and it could be that it actually these sharks are going down there to breed. We have absolutely no idea where basking sharks breed. We have never seen, scientists have never described an embryonic or young basking shark, which I think is extraordinary. These things really are mysterious. But it could be that they're going down there to breed, but we really don't know. And this really sheds some light on the fact that you know these creatures are hugely mysterious, still a lot we need to learn about them and also possibly how we treat them in terms of how we might want to conserve them and protect them. They are threatened and they're listed as being um, vulnerable to extinction and now maybe they're all part of one big population. Before we thought they were smaller populations that were maybe isolated from each other, but perhaps they're all intermingling and that really will affect how we might want to go about perhaps a global basking shark conservation programme is now needed. I want to get a shark cam stuck on the top of one of that's they what do I do that kind of thing yeah. as well you know we need we need some more we need more tags out there more cameras and things to figure out what they're doing and if they're just great creatures i've never seen one i'd love to go and see one of these fantastic sharks cool uh from very very big animals to very very tiny animals and uh, mosquitoes which are a major problem around the world and not just because they're annoying little buggers but because they spread deadly malaria this is a disease that kills over a million people worldwide every year and sadly mostly children now, this week, researchers at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the States have made an important discovery that could pave the way for new ways to tackle these pesky little insects. And their work's published this week in the latest edition of PLOS Pathogens, that cracking read. Um, the researchers, anyway, focused on bacteria that are found in the gut of the Anopheles gambii mosquitoes. These are the ones that pick up the malaria parasite and transmit it all over the place. They discovered that these gut bacteria help to prevent the mosquitoes from becoming infected with that malaria parasite. And when they treated the mosquitoes with antibiotics to kill off their gut bugs, the uh, mosquitoes became much more susceptible to malaria infection. And intriguingly, though, they found that if the mosquitoes were infected with the bacteria, 
bacteria, they had a shorter lifespan. So this is good news uh, in two ways, because it takes about two weeks for the malaria parasite to complete its life cycle within a mosquito. So the mozzies are dying earlier and they're also more resistant to being infected in the first place with the parasite. So they're much more, uh, much less likely to pass on malaria. So the researchers think this is working probably by um, the bacteria in the gut are stimulating the mosquito's immune system. So basically they can't really cope with infection from the, from the parasite as well. So it blocks the infection with that. And the lead author, uh, George Dimopoulos, suggests that deliberately inducing, introducing these bacteria to wild mosquito populations could actually be a good way to control malaria infections because there's different populations of bacteria in different places where the mosquitoes live. So if we can find the most harmful ones, that really, really knocks out um, the malaria infection and knocks out these mosquitoes. It could be a powerful way to control malaria. That sounds cool because we always are looking for ways in which to control this terrible disease and that sounds like one way. Although sprinkling the world with bacteria sounds a little scary but I'm sure they won't be doing that straight away before <laughs> they know specific. more about what's going on. Well, there's also a lot of talk these days about climate change and trying to cut down all our, our carbon footprints and how much we're affecting that uh, build-up of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And now scientists this week have come up with evidence of a new way, perhaps, to help cut down on our electricity bills. And the solution could be as simple as planting some trees. Well, two researchers from the States, David Buttry from the National Institute of Standards and Technology and Jeffrey Donovan from the US Department of Agriculture, have conducted a study looking at how planting trees around your house could help shade it in summer. And that's enough to help you switch off your air conditioner really and have much less um, energy going into it and we all know that trees provide lovely shade it's a nice spot to sit on in, under in the summer but is that enough to really have an effect on your house well this is the first wide-scale study to investigate whether this does translate into a significant energy saving um, Buttry and Donovan studied 460 homes in Sacramento in the US during the summer of 2007 and they looked at what trees were growing around particular houses and then they linked that actually to the energy bills of each household to see how much energy electricity they were using and we know that a huge amount more electricity is used in the summer for in places that are hot and people want to use their air conditioners to keep themselves nice and cool inside well the researchers found that by planting trees on the west and the south side of the house you could actually decrease um, your summer electricity use by an average of five percent a year which might not sound like a lot but I think it really is, considering all you're doing is planting a couple of trees. And they think that um, maybe by planting a London plane tree uh, on the west side of your house, over 100 years, you could save 30% um, on your carbon emissions. Again, that's over a longer time frame, but it's things like this maybe that really could start making a difference. And of course, you're kind of, you've got a double win there because trees also absorb carbon dioxide and lock it away from the atmosphere. So in another way, trees are good to have around for lots of reasons. And uh, I think it sounds like a very promising idea, um, but the authors are really keen for other people to go out in other parts of the world, do studies like this to see if something similar is going on with trees in other parts of the world. Maybe ones that are less hot. Anyway, the final news story we have is a very exciting one. And I always love it when we're like sending stuff into space. And next Thursday, all being well, we're going to see the launch of the European Space Agency's Herschel and Planck missions, which are studying the formation of stars and galaxies and background radiation, all sorts of exciting things. And on the show today, we are joined by Dr. Anthony Challoner, who's here to uh, tell us about the mission and how he's going to be looking at some of the data from it. So thanks for coming on the show, Anthony. That's quite all right. So tell me, what's the mission that you're involved in and what's it doing? Uh, so we're involved in the Planck mission. Um, and what Planck's trying to do is study what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. Um, so this is really the oldest light in the universe. Um, 
It was essentially created in the Big Bang itself. Um, and what we're going to try and do is study uh, very sensitively the tiny variations in temperature in this radiation when you look in different directions. Uh, and from that, we hope to learn a lot about both the early universe um, and also um, something about what the universe is composed of, uh, what its geometry is, um, and perhaps even the ultimate fate of the universe. Crikey. Um, what's, what's the actual satellite going to be like? Where, where's it shooting off to? Um, so Planck, uh, is, its ultimate uh, home is, is going to be what's called the second Lagrange point, uh, which is a very special point, uh, about one and a half million kilometres uh, from the Earth. Um, and it's peculiar in that it, it rotates at exactly the same angular speed about the Sun as the Earth does. Um, so thermally, it's a very stable environment, which is exactly what you need when you're looking for these tiny temperature variations, uh, just about a millionth of, uh, of a degree uh, fluctuations we're looking for. So you're, you're looking for these tiny fluctuations in temperature. How far back in time are you, going to, are you hoping to be able to look? You know, are you hoping that this data will, will shed light on? So the cosmic microwave background radiation was produced very, very early in the, the history of the universe. Um, and the early universe was very, very opaque. But eventually it became essentially transparent about 400,000 years um, after when we think the Big Bang occurred. And at that time, uh, the microwave background uh, effectively decoupled from all the matter in the universe. So when we look at it today, we're, we're effectively seeing a snapshot of conditions in the universe 400,000 uh, years after the Big Bang, um, or about 13 billion years, 14 billion years uh, back in time from now. And how, how is the Planck mission special or, or different from the sort of previous microwave measuring experiments that have been done before? Well, so, so Planck is, is Europe's first uh, satellite mission uh, to try and measure the microwave background. Um, there have been two other NASA missions before, uh, the first called COBE, the second called WMAP, which is actually still observing. Planck uh, is an improvement in that it's much more sensitive, it will observe over a wider range of wavelengths, um, and it has better angular resolution as well. And if it's so far away from the Earth, how is it sending the signals all the way back for you to analyse back in the lab? How long does it take that data to get to you? Um, well, the, the data is transmitted. Um, it's not transmitted continuously, but it's sort of buffered on board. And then there's a, uh, an hour or two hour slot every day when it's all transmitted back. And, and how long does it take to get back to you? <laughs> Um, what for, from the yeah from, from the where, satellite? Where is. Um, well, it, it, it takes it's one point five uh, million kilometres. Um, so, however long light takes to travel that distance, I don't know. Any of the listeners would like to do that calculation and tell us that'd be great. Tell us a little bit about Herschel, the other satellite as well. What's that up to? Okay, so we're not directly involved in Herschel, uh, although there are groups in the UK that are. Um, and what Herschel is basically trying to do is uh, it's looking at, at dust uh, within the universe. So it's an infrared satellite. Um, and it's basically looking at, at galaxies um, that otherwise we can't see uh, in optical light because the, the starlight is sort of shrouded uh, and absorbed by, uh, by dust. But that dust is then heated by the starlight and re-radiates in the infrared. Um, so Herschel will be able to see those sort of environments directly. I love the idea of a satellite going out looking for dust out in the universe, <laughs> doing the dusting. How clean is your galaxy? Some people are very interested in dust, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are. So uh, where's the mission launching from this Thursday? Uh, so it's going to launch from Karoo in French Guiana. And you didn't manage to get a ticket out Unfortunately there? Unfortunately not, oh. no. Um, <laughs> um, when are the first, uh, the first bits of information going to be coming back? How long is it going to take to get into position? Um, so it takes about three months uh, for, for Planck to reach um, L2 
um, where it will start observing from. And the plan then, um, it, it takes a couple of couple months further to sort of settle down and properly be commissioned. But then after that, Planck will um, do basically two complete surveys of the sky, which will take about 15 months. And then you'll get all the data back and come back on the show, tell us all about it. That's right. I mean, we, we, we get the data back essentially as soon as, it, as, soon as Planck starts, uh, starts observing. Um, but it will be uh, probably about three years before uh, there is any real public data release of the, the cosmological data. Brilliant. Well, we'll really look forward to hearing that. Thank you very much. Thank That's you. Dr. Lee, uh, Dr. Anthony Challoner from the Institute of Astronomy here in Cambridge. So uh, if you are a space-excited person, then watch out for the launch of the satellite this Thursday. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Helen Scales, and Kat Arney. If you've got a question for The Naked Scientist, you can email us on chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, let's join Ben and Dave for our kitchen science experiment of the week. And this one you can try out at home if you have a rather wonderful kitchen piece of kitchen equipment like a soda stream or a soda siphon for this week's watery kitchen science dave is going to show me something to do with what happens when water becomes fizzy so dave what are you going to do well i want to try and compare the chemistry of water before and after it's been made fizzy now um, you could do this by comparing just some fizzy water you've bought in the shop and some not fizzy water but then it's rather hard to be sure that they start off with the same kind of water. So we're going to start off with a bottle of perfectly normal tap water. It's Cambridge tap water, so it's quite hard. There's quite a lot of dissolved limestone in there. And then we're going to put it into a soda siphon and make it fizzy. Now, soda siphon is one of these things that I, I've never actually seen in the flesh before. I've only seen them in 50s slapstick films where people get sprayed in the face. This is actually what you use to make the water fizzy. Yeah, it was a very 60s, 70s thing. Basically, it's an aluminium bottle with a thing on the top with a few valves in it. You then take one of these things. It's basically a metal bulb full of very high-pressure carbon dioxide gas. You then attach it to the soda siphon and let the gas from the bulb into the water inside the bottle. That will then dissolve and you end up with fizzy water. In fact, you can do the same experiment using a soda stream rather than a soda siphon because it works in exactly the same way. So this means that we can easily compare tap water to exactly the same tap water, just with some fizz added. But how are we actually going to test it? How are we going to see what's different? What I've got here is some red cabbage, which I've grated up and mushed around with a spoon in some water. And then that produces this purpley liquid with some cabbage in there still, as you can see, it makes a lovely smell. It does smell very, very strong, but it looks... It's really dark. It looks almost like ink. You can hardly see through it at all. And it's a really rich, dark blue, sort of purple type colour. Yeah, that's right. This colour is coming from a dye, which is a type of anthocyanin. Now, these are dyes which are found all over the natural world, from um, red roses to bluebells. And this dye is also what you find in litmus paper. It's a litmus dye. And it will change colour depending on how acid its environment is. And you've mushed that up in just the same water that we're testing to see what happens when it gets fizzy. That's right. Cambridge water is slightly alkaline, so at the moment it should have a slightly bluish-purplish tinge. Does this mean that if you were to do the same experiment with water from somewhere else, that it might not be the same colour? 
Yes, if you did it from a soft water area, it would probably be reddish in tinge. And actually, we want to start it off slightly bluish. So if you live in a soft water area, it starts off slightly reddish. Add a little bit of bicarbonate soda until it just starts to be a bluey, purpley colour. Okay, so we start off with this really nice inky purple-blue colour. And what are we actually going to do? I've got two glasses here. I'm going to put maybe a few millimetres, three or four millimetres of this strong red cabbage solution into the bottom of each glass. Okay, well, certainly the smell of cabbage is filling the room, which just isn't very nice, but we now have red cabbage solution in the bottom of each glass. So when we come back later in the show, what are we going to use this for? We're going to add some tap water to one glass. And then we're going to take the same tap water, put it into the soda siphon, carbonate it, add lots of carbon dioxide, then squirt it into the other glass and see if there's any difference. Okay, so when we come back into the show, we're going to do a very well-controlled test to find out if there's any difference in the acidity between some normal tap water or some tap water that's been made fizzy. We'll be back later in the show. Thanks, guys. So what do you think will happen when they mix tap water with smelly red cabbage water? And will the fizzy tap water be any different? Tell us what you think by sending us an email at chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, on this week's show, we're talking all about rivers, ponds and the sort of the aquatic environment around here. And still to come, we'll be hearing about the alien species that are invading Britain's rivers, as well as chatting to Alan Titchmarsh, He's so lovely about why ponds are important. But one factor that has a significant impact on the quality of rivers is human activity. Tons of rubbish is just chucked into rivers and canals every year. And this not only makes the rivers look pretty dirty, it also does threaten wildlife. Now, here in Cambridge, the Great Cam Cleanup is a volunteer project to help keep the river clean. And Ben Valsler went along to help out. I have spent this morning, alongside many other volunteers, pulling rubbish out of the River Cam and out of the banks of the River Cam. This has been part of the Great Cam Cleanup. Now in its fifth year, an opportunity for volunteers from the community to get together and try and clean up their waterways and their green spaces. I'm here with Luther Phillips, who organised this year's Great Cam Cleanup, and also with Andrew Walters from Anglian Waters River Care Project. So, Luther... Why have you organised the Great Cam Cleanup? Because I care about the River Cam, I live on the River Cam, and I really do have a passion for the wildlife in Cambridge. I live on Sturbridge Common, and it's not far from the centre of Cambridge, but on a daily basis I see herons, I see grebes, I see kingfishers, the cows grazing on the common. The the rubbish that we generate, if we can just be conscious of the fact that we generate rubbish and if we're in a position that we can actually recycle that rubbish, it will create an environment where we enjoy our green spaces and our river more and more. And it's not just the wildlife, is it? I, I know a great deal of people walk their dogs, people cycle along that route, and the fact that it's cleaner in itself makes it more enjoyable for people. There are many different river users that obviously use the river the rowers the dog walkers there's a residential boating community anglers and obviously everyone has a vested interest in keeping the river clean but the fact that there's so many different walks of life that use the river it's important that we can bring these people together in an event like this 
to help them to be able to take care of it, to maintain and, and, and to sustain what we created today in, in, in particular. We want to create a legacy that once people see that, you know, the next two days, the, the open spaces will be clean, the river will be clean in their consciousness, and they'll think, well, actually, we can sustain this. So it's, it's a very important event that will create a legacy in people's minds of something that they can sustain. Alongside us today, I think I've seen at least three generations of people helping to pick up rubbish and to keep the river clean. How many people do you actually get involved in this? Uh, we've had over 225 people who uh, registered in advance of the event. On the day, we've had, we have over 185 signatures, and there were people who just came along, took part and disappeared without even just making a presence known. So I, I would estimate there's over 200 people that physically took part today. And between 200 people, it actually makes cleaning this stretch of the river seem relatively light work. But how much rubbish did you pull out? Well, that's difficult to estimate because at this stage, we've just, we've just concluded the event. However, I must say that it's increased on the number of bags that we collected last year. There were over 660 bags of recyclable rubbish last year, 100-something bags which were pulled out of the river. There were a vast number of trolleys. So it's a fantastic effort by the people of Cambridge who've just spent their time, the sacrifice, six, seven hours of the day, and, you know, they've given something back to Cambridge, which is very important. It's created a more cohesive environment, uh, community, and it's empowered people because they are more passionate. And they will go away from today, and they will talk to their friends, they'll talk to their colleagues at work on Monday, and I'm sure next year's event, which will be on the 27th of March 2010, will be even bigger than it was today. I'm also joined by Andrew Walters from the Anglian Water River Care Project. Andrew, you must be extremely pleased to see volunteers coming out in such huge numbers to try and keep the rivers clean. It's great. It's been a really great day to have such a lot of local people concerned about their local environment. I mean, this, the river here, the Cam, it's, it's, a, it's a green wildlife corridor, really, running through the city. And um, to have this many people out there just taking real hands-on practical action to clean it up is, is really encouraging. So do we know for a fact that removing rubbish from inside and around a river is actually good to keep it greener, to keep it cleaner, to encourage the wildlife in? Yeah, we do. I mean, directly, without being too gruesome, we know that when, um, unfortunately, otters are killed on roads and um, autopsies are are performed, uh, a lot of rubbish is found within their guts. So it is genuinely polluting the environment and it is a danger to wildlife as well. More indirectly, I think when um, people see a river and a river banks that are clean and free of litter, they're more inspired by them and more encouraged to, to respect them and have a sense of ownership of them and really appreciate them as the kind of uh, the urban habitats that they are. So what is it that you at Rivercare actually do? Rivercare, our role really is to um, support uh, communities around the eastern region to set up uh, local groups which um, do just this. They're practically working on their local rivers, removing rubbish, um, removing litter, and also doing um, surveys of the wildlife that's there. So it's not just clearing up rubbish then. It's not literally a rubbish removal project. You also have wildlife surveys, and I assume you deal with the invasive species that we have. That's right. I mean, it's a twofold thing, really. Firstly, um, the groups do great work in logging where certain um, invasive species are occurring, but also um, in the instance of um, Himalayan balsam, which is uh, an invasive weed uh, that's becoming more prevalent on our river banks. In midsummer, when it's just coming up, the group's a lot of work in removing it from the river banks, which uh, enables the native wildflowers to grow and uh, prevents some um, bank erosion during the winter. 
And the, the wildlife surveys, the biodiversity surveys that you've run, is there anything particularly exciting we could see around here? Uh, I think there is. I mean, uh, I think an issue is that um, often when we see um, a bike or a shopping trolley and some litter in our local river, we think that, uh, you know, it's probably uh, in, in a poor state. Um, but the, the reality is actually um, the biodiversity within the rivers and on the banks is, is very rich. And um, the rivers are generally in, in good quality around Cambridgeshire. And um, so don't be put off when you see uh, an odd bit of litter around. What should people do if they live near a river and want to get involved with making it a, a happier, healthier place to be? Uh, if they're interested in getting involved, then please do take a look at our website, which is www.rivercare.org.uk. Have a look on there and see if there's a local group in your area and, uh, and join them in doing this kind of thing. And of course, one essential thing is just not to drop litter in the first place. Absolutely. It's great to have days today with people picking up all this huge amount of litter. But, um, of course, a great way to start is just by not dropping it in the first place. And that was Andrew Walters from Rivercare and before him Luther Phillips, who organises the great Cam Cleanup. They are both talking to our producer Ben Valsler about the importance of cleaning up the river for both the wildlife and the local community. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and me, Helen Scales. Well, we've just heard how foreign objects, bicycles and shopping trolleys and things like that, get into our rivers and they can really harm wildlife. But some of the wildlife in there shouldn't be there in the first place. Invasive species like the Himalayan balsam plant we heard about just now take resources from native species and they can damage local ecosystems. Well, in the studio now we have Dr David Aldridge from Cambridge University and he works on the understanding how the ecology of invasive species um, affects our river wa- rivers and fresh waters um, and finds out ways of trying to stop them. Hi, David. Thanks for coming into the studio. Hello, Helen. It's a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, first of all, what do we really mean by invasive species and why are they a problem? Most people um, understand the term invasive species to relate to species which are not native in, in a new area, but which also have a negative impact on the ecosystem. So we can have invaders that we don't notice, or do we generally, they generally stand out, we know they're there, and that's why they're a problem? Um, we sometimes talk about um, this TENS rule, where um, about 10% of the species which invade a new system don't establish, and then only 10% of those that do establish actually have a measurable impact. So there's lots of things around in our rivers and elsewhere in, in our environments which we don't really notice and don't really have a measurable impact. And the things that get to the British waterways and are a problem, what sort of things are we seeing arriving in our shores? Um, well, we've just finished an inventory um, of all the non-native species in Britain's waterways. and we're How many are there? There's about 120. Wow! But there's okay. there's lots waiting to come, and we're 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 trying to um, help predict which is which is going to be the next big problem. But some of the really big um, problems throughout the UK are present in in the Cambridgeshire area. Um, You've got some in front of you there, I see. I have, so you I've, brought some dead critters. I'm pleased to say yes. into the studio for us. What have you got there? I've got a little menagerie of goodies here. Um, I've got some zebra mussels. I've got. Um, a signal crayfish from North America, and I've got a Chinese mitten crab. Excellent. Well, um, we heard a little bit about the zebra mussels last time you were on the show a couple of years ago, and I take it they are still a problem very much within the UK waters. They have become an increasingly um, larger problem, um, and actually they've got a very close re- relative, um, something which belongs to the same genus, um, something called the quagga mussel, which is 
building up in the River Rhine and almost displacing the zebra mussels, and so that's going to arrive with us very soon. So another really invasion of something that's getting rid of another invasion. And why why are they a problem? What's wrong with having these zebra mussels? They look rather beautiful, I have to say. The collection you've got right there, they're stripy and... Uh, you know, they don't look problem. They look quite small. They're sort of size of a thumbnail. I mean, why should that be a problem in, in, in the wild? Um, you're right, they're beautiful. But um, unlike our native freshwater mussels, which just sit in the bottom of rivers with their foot digging into the mud, zebra mussels have a beard, a byssus thread, which is like the marine mussels that you eat. But Moon nothing... yeah, tasty. Indeed. <laughs> um, so zebra mussels are able to sit on solid surfaces. Um, and they can attach to each other and sit in dense layers. So they they can foul pipelines, um, drinking water supplies, um, cooling systems to power plants, irrigation systems, but also they sit on our native wildlife. And one of the things they really threaten, such as this specimen I've got in front of me, um, are our native mussels, which provide a really good substrate, and they choke them and cause them to die. Yes, because that, that's a huge muscle you've got there, and it's I can hardly see it. It's kind of covered in, in then smaller zebra mussels. That's incredible. And the, the, uh, the crayfish you've got there, that looks quite tasty. Um, can we eat those? <laughs> we can, and that's the reason they were brought over here. The, the American signal crayfish was brought over in the 1970s as, um, as um, a commercial aquaculture food. Um, the problem with, with these crayfish is that they can walk over land, so they escaped out of these little ponds they were put in, and um, they can move into um, the wider environment. So um, they are very good at um, sort of changing the ecosystem through feeding on the, the bottom-rooting plants, the macrophytes, um, and they dig burrows, which can cause sort of um, destabilisation of the banks. But perhaps of greatest sort of immediate concern is that they carry a fungus, um, something called crayfish plague, which... Um, kills our native crayfish species but these are pretty resistant um, the American ones are pretty resistant too so we've had for instance in the CAM in, um, in 2000 there was an outbreak of plague which wiped out native crayfish from about um, 20 kilometres of river um, within wow. weeks Wow. And if we get, could we kind of combat that fungus? Is that one way of looking at sort of the problem? Or do we really just need to get rid of the, the invasive crayfish themselves? The, the signal crayfish and the other non-native crayfish we have in Britain are a real problem. Nobody's really found a way of controlling those. Um, the Environment Agency have tried sort of heavy-duty trapping. Um, people have tried pheromone traps to try and skew the sex ratio in the rivers. Um, one, of my, one of my sort of observations is that certainly in sort of some of the Chalk streams, the River Shep, um, for instance, in Cambridgeshire, um, where you've got cooler headwaters, the fungus seems to be less virulent there, and so there could be refuges for the native crayfish in those areas. Um, but um, generally speaking, there's no known sort of way to eradicate So far, this. we don't know what to do about them. And you've got another crab in front of you, and you say that was a Chinese mitten crab. Did they come from China? Yes, I mean, quite a few of our non-native species have come from China. Um, they are very popular food items in, in Asia. Um, um, the Chinese mitten crab um, is quite tasty, but unfortunately in China it also carries a fluke, um, which is um, harmful to humans. So that's a, that burrow into your liver or something? And that's uh, right, yeah. The things nasty, that flukes usually do. Nasty yeah. things. OK. Um, but you also work in China, don't you? You're looking at similar sort of issues of invasive species out there? Yeah, I've, I've been working in China for the last um, five years with the World Bank um, and... There, the focus is on sort of trying to rehabilitate some of the world's largest but most polluted freshwater ecosystems. So I'm working on the border with Tibet um, in some of China's largest lakes that were created during the Himalayan uplift. And How the, big are the lakes? Um, 
Lake Jansha, which is the largest one we work in, is about um, 300 square kilometres. Um, the second largest one we have, um, Lake Fujian, is 160 metres deep. They're, they're pretty it's big pretty things. pretty huge then, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of space there for lots of creatures to... Uh, to get into. Yeah, I mean, historically, these, these lakes we've discovered had massive endemism. We've, we've found in the area sort of over 50 species of fish, which you find in these lakes and nowhere else. But with habitat degradation, we're discovering that these, um, these ecosystems have really crashed. Um, over 90% of the biomass in these lakes are non-native organisms. They're things like introduced carp, they're water hyacinth, which totally sort of smothers the lake surfaces. Um, so only 10% of the living stuff in those lakes is stuff that should be there, really. Yeah, and actually a lot of the stuff there hasn't been described before. Um, the fish have been well studied, but um, when I went out the first time five years ago, I put a dry suit on and jumped in to the water, which a lot of Chinese people tend not to do. I rolled over some rocks and I found... Um, a new species of leech, um, a huge thing with green and purple stripes. Um, oh, we've gosh, found that sounds water horrible. Beetles, all sorts of things. You know, there's, there's, so there's there are so some amazing room. creatures yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and finally, really, what, what, what can we do to try and protect ecosystems from these invaders? It sounds like there's an enormous problem in China. How on earth can you start to actually do anything about that? Um, it's, um, a lot of it is education, um, but the problem is that until we understand the, um, we, we can conduct risk analyses and identify what invaders are going to be the most likely next big problems. It's very difficult to develop policy and decide what we should be doing to stop things moving around. And we have to understand the vectors. Um, there is implication for climate change on this and whether new species might be better suited to, to invade and things. So there's all sorts of complicated issues to consider. It sounds like a very thorny issue indeed, but thank you very much for coming and, and introducing us to the world of invasive species. That was David Aldridge. He's from Cambridge University and works on understanding the aliens that are invading our waterways. Now, still to come on the show, Diana O'Carroll will be here with the answer to our question of the week. Can you do aerobatic stunts like looping the loop in a passenger aircraft? You guys are weird. Who thought of that one? Anyway, we'll go back to Ben and Dave also to find out what happens to red cabbage indicator when you make water fizzy. And we've had an uh, uh, email in from um, Sati Vartri who says, use a soda stream to make baths or bowls full of fizzy water. Um, put it in your plants in the greenhouse. You can double their growth speed. Um, I grow hair hemp in my bedroom windowsill up to six feet tall using this method. You're growing hemp. Right. Anyway, <clears throat> on with the show. Now, over recent decades, ponds have vanished from our natural environment, but the charity Pond Conservation is embarking on an ambitious project to see thousands of new ponds being created in the UK. I went along to the launch of their Million Ponds project to find out more, and one special guest at the event was gardener and broadcaster Alan Titchmarsh. He is so lovely. So... <laughs> I can't believe you him. got to meet him. I got to meet him. Lucky he was, thing. He's, so, he's shorter than you might think. Anyway, so I started off by asking him why ponds are such an important part of our landscape. The greatest thing about ponds is that for something so relatively small, the wildlife that they support is absolutely huge. If you think of the things within the landscape that use a pond, from birds coming down to drink, hedgehogs and mammals coming down to drink, the pond life that's in the depths there and in the shallows from pond skaters and water boatmen to newts, frogs, toads, damselflies, dragonflies, you start to build up this list and you think, 
all that just from a little patch of clean water, and that's the vital thing? And the answer is yes, and anybody can make one. It is so simple. You can do it in an afternoon, make a small pond, take charge of it, make it clean, and you think, well, hang on a minute, how am I going to introduce all that wildlife to it? You don't have to. It will come. The most astonishing thing is that all that wildlife finds you of its own accord. Have you noticed the quality of ponds changing over recent years? And it's not just the quality of ponds, it's the amount of ponds. We're losing numbers of ponds that are disappearing. I'm lucky enough to, have a, to live in a village which has a village pond, which is fed by a natural stream, so it's wonderful. You know, it, it stays clean. Um, but they are disappearing. They get filled in. Um, they get polluted. That's the, one of the most difficult things, with runoff from farmland and nitrates. Our clean ponds are now very few in number. I think it's about 80% of our, of our ponds are no longer clean. But there, it's not difficult to put that right. And I think that's the great appeal of uh, Million Ponds, is the fact that we can address this quite easily, relatively quickly, and also quite economically. How, how would someone go about digging a pond? What would be your top tips for them? People tend to make ponds either too small when they heat up like saucepans do uh, on a hot summer's day, or too deep, strangely enough. They think a pond's got to be about four feet deep. No, 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 no. 18 inches in the middle is ample. I mean, go to two feet if you want. Make sure it's got shallows so that things can get in and get out. And there's more life in the shallows of a pond than there are in the depths. If you've got a three-foot-deep pond, there's nothing much living right down the bottom there at all. One or two amphibians might hibernate there, but most of them hibernate outside the pond. Um, you know, under stones and things like that. So um, it's it's so easy with a decent liner that can't get perforated and a bit of underlay and a bit of soil on top of it. And then you can either fill it or you can be very patient and wait for a rainy day. <laughs> it's so easy. It's as easy as that. How much fun can you have with ponds? My big thing about ponds is exactly that. And, and that, for me, is the essence of conservation. There tends to be a lot of finger-wagging in conservation terms and the onus is on you and it's a, it's a weighty responsibility. It is the greatest joy in life to do something which improves that nasty thing called the environment. I'm certain my life's work is to find a better word for environment. I like landscape, that's much nicer. Um, it is so joyous. You introduce children to gardening, to, and that's the sort of sharp end, if you like, of conservation, just dabbling around in the soil with a, a trowel, making a pond, looking at pond life, they are entranced by it. And there's far more, and I say this, uh, somebody who knows, far more to watch in a pond than there is on telly. So, ponds are easy to make and they're more fun than watching TV. To find out more about the Million Ponds Project, I spoke to Jeremy Biggs, Policy and Research Director at Pond Conservation. Million Ponds Project is a five-year initiative to add about 4,000 new ponds to the countryside and in the longer term to double the number of ponds in the British landscape to get back to the million ponds or so that we had at the beginning of the 20th century. So over the next 50 years, we're going to make 500,000 new ponds to replace those old ones that we've lost. It sounds ambitious. Who's, who's going to help you do this? Well, there are all sorts of people making ponds. It's, it's actually not as ambitious as it sounds, I would say. When you look around the countryside, there's about 20 ponds a day being made by people already. So that's five or 6,000 a year. So actually, all we need to do really is just to capitalise on that work that they're already doing out there and make it a bit better and make them help people to get the best of their pond creation, the work they're already doing very often. The people who'll be doing it 
really, again, that's all kinds of people from big organisations like the RSPB, the National Trust, the Environment Agency, right through to individual landowners and land managers. People can even make ponds at home in their garden uh, as well. And what are the risks of not bringing back the ponds? How have we seen the environment change as a result of losing so many ponds? There are so many things that live in ponds. About two-thirds of, the, of all the kinds of freshwater plants and animals there are can be found in ponds. So if you lose those ponds, and in particular if when so many of them are damaged by pollution and other impacts, so there's about 80% which are in poor condition. When so many are damaged and degraded, it means there's just less habitat available for a whole range of freshwater plants and animals, many of which have now become rare. Most of the things which need clean water are struggling nowadays. There's just nowhere left for them to go. So by putting back that clean water, we hope to kind of take the pressure off a bit, let things spread out again, just to, just to give them a refuge. And finally, tell me about your favourite pond. Well, I've got lots of favourite ponds, actually. To be honest, almost any pond which is clean and unpolluted, has uh, rich stands of plants under the water. When you take your pond net, you dip it, you see lots of different kinds of animals in the water. There are loads of amphibians around. These are not so common these days, so almost anywhere where you see something like that... That's one of my favourite places. Of course, there are all sorts of these. That, you, know, you can see these dotted around the countryside still from, from the south of England, from the, the Lizard Peninsula on the, in the far southwest, right through to the far northwest highlands of Scotland. You can find them dotted around. To be honest, those are really all my favourites. And that was Jeremy Biggs from Pond Conservation and before him, TV gardener and housewife's favourite, Alan Titchmarsh, discussing the virtues of the humble pond. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Dr Kat and Dr Helen. Now, we've had a couple of questions in. There's a text question from Andy in Northampton who wants to know, is the sun a living thing? No, it isn't. It's a big flaming ball of exploding helium. Um... So, <laughs> I think or hydrogen, one of the two. Physics, not my strong point. But no, it's not alive. It's not cells in it. Uh, we also have another question from Keith in Norwich, who says, can you ask if the people working with the mosquitoes, the news story I covered earlier, had considered using the bacteria in their guts to develop a protection for humans or whatever? It's an interesting question. I think this works still at a very early stage. The protection from the bacteria for the mosquitoes was really due to their immune system rather than anything special about the bacteria themselves. Um, as far as I know at the moment. So it's certainly an interesting question and um, I don't think it would work if you infected humans with bacteria either. But uh, certainly an interesting question. Thanks, Keith. So we won't be putting it in our yogurts quite just yet. Now it's time to invite Diana O'Carroll back into the studio for our question of the week. Hello, Diana. Hello. Well, this week's question is all about jumbo jet manoeuvres. Hello, I'm Dave from Essex and this is my question. Can you do aircraft manoeuvres like a loop-the-loop or a barrel roll in Airbus A380s and Boeing 747s. So, can these big passenger jets show up the red arrows? My name is Dick Slay, and I'm with the Boeing Commercial Airplanes in Seattle, Washington, and I am one of the spokespersons for the company. Well, a large passenger jet, such as the Boeing 747, or almost almost any large passenger jetliner, was not designed, nor was it tested, nor was it certified to perform uh, aerobatic maneuvers like a loop-the-loop or a barrel roll. Certainly the wings of the airplane would be put under quite a bit of stress, and 
you know, some of the tail structure and so forth. Doesn't mean it couldn't do it, but they were not designed that way, and they were certainly not certified with that in mind. In the early days of the jetliners, when the jetliner was being developed at the Boeing Company in the 1950s, there was a prototype called the 367-80. That was the 707 prototype. And the original test pilot on that airplane was Tex Johnston. And one day he was asked to fly the airplane over a, a major event here in Seattle, which was called the hydroplane races. So he did, in fact, fly the airplane at a fairly low altitude over the crowd. But then he decided to uh, really impress the crowd, so he did a barrel roll with that airplane, much to the surprise of the Boeing officials who were watching from down below. But he felt that it was a good demonstration of the airplane's capability. But he was strongly reminded never to do that again. And indeed, as far as I know, it has not been done again, at least certainly not as part of our test operation here at Boeing. So Tex Johnson managed a barrel roll in a 707, but this had about half the wingspan of an A380 and was less than a quarter of the weight. Apparently, a barrel roll exerts 1G of force on a plane all the way around, so perhaps a big jet could make it through that move. Here's a pilot to tell us what he thinks. Yes, I'm Peter Merton, the resident research officer at the Imperial War Museum at Duxford. The simple answer is frankly no. The critical point about, well, not just modern passenger jet airliners, but airliners built in the past during the 20s and 30s coming forward in time, is that they are designed to be load carriers. So they're designed to withstand the quite severe adverse weather conditions to be able to carry passengers and cargo in safety, and especially nowadays, of course, with the long-range jets, to carry a lot of fuel. So they are perfectly capable of some quite violent maneuvers in terms of things like steep turns, and I've seen them being flown with some very graceful precision flying, doing quite steep dives and climbs, but not, of course, with passengers or cargo on board. This is the big difference, that they are designed to be strong and robust and particularly to have a good survivability factor in case of an accident or a crash landing, whereas a purpose-designed aerobatic aircraft or even other aircraft types like fighter aircraft can cope with the stresses and that that is the critical difference, really. So the big passenger jets are not designed to do these moves and may not come out of them terribly well, but potentially they could do it. In 1985, China Airlines Flight 006, a Boeing 747, lost power in one of its engines, causing the plane to roll and descend over 3,000 metres in 20 seconds. During the fall, the plane experienced forces of up to 5G. Now, everyone survived and the plane did land safely, but portions of the tail stabilisers broke off, as did parts of the landing gear doors, and the wings were permanently bent upwards by two inches. So perhaps a jumbo jet could make it through a 5G loop, but it might not be in quite the same shape it started off in. But now, from the biggest objects in the skies to some of the smallest. Hello. I was watching a programme on television the other day about bees and how they do a wee dance to tell the other bees where the flowers are. Now, I was talking about this with my friend the other night and about evolution, and neither of us could think of a way that the bee dance might have evolved in very small steps, if you know what I mean. Could you shed any light on that for us, please? Thank you very much. 
How do you think the dance of the bees came about? Answers to Chris at thenakedscientist.com or post them on the web-based forum. That can be found at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. It's now time to go back to Dave and Ben, who are exploring the chemistry of fizzy water. Welcome back to this week's Kitchen Science, where I'm literally fizzing with anticipation to find out what the difference is in chemistry between fizzy water and normal still tap water. So, Dave, can you take us through what we've got set up? Okay, I've got some red cabbage water. That's basically just perfectly normal uncooked red cabbage mushed up in some tap water which produces this sort of purpley coloured solution. I've put a little bit of this solution in two glasses, maybe only three or four millimetres in the bottom of each glass. I'm now going to put some normal tap water in one of the two glasses. Well, clearly it diluted it, and so it doesn't look as strong, it's not quite as opaque as it was before, but it's still a lovely inky purple-blue colour. Yep, that's what you'd expect. Um, The water in Cambridge is slightly alkaline so it's going to produce this bluish color okay and now we need to make some of that self-same tap water fizzy so we're going to put it into your fantastic retro soda siphon that's the plan so how much does your soda siphon take how much water will it hold probably two-thirds of a liter or so and it looks as if it's made out of similar stuff to say a thermos flask This one is made out of aluminium. It just needs to be a fairly strong bottle because it's going to take quite a high pressure in a minute. And then we have our special little canister, a bulb of CO2. Now this screws onto the side of the soda siphon and there's a cap that goes over the top. This cap is actually pushing it onto a little spike, a hollow spike, that pushes the spike through the end of the bulb, which lets the pressurised carbon dioxide from inside the bulb into the bottle. And this is why it needs to be quite well built, because actually that's under quite high pressure. It will probably go up to sort of five or six atmospheres at least, yes. Okay, so now I'm going to screw it on tight and break the seal. That was a brilliant noise. I assume what happened there was the spike broke the seal, all of that compressed CO2 got pushed into the water. But how does that actually make it fizzy? Won't it just displace some water and sit at the top being a gas? Well, carbon dioxide is actually quite soluble in water. And that's because carbon dioxide, CO2, will actually react with water molecules. So a CO2 molecule reacts with an H2O water molecule to form H2CO3. This means you can dissolve an awful lot more CO2 gas in water than you could do other gases which don't react with water, like oxygen or nitrogen. Why do you have to have so much pressure? Well, this reaction is reversible. It can go in both ways. Uh, Water can react with carbon dioxide molecules, or they can split up again and the carbon dioxide can escape. This means that if you want to get lots of carbon dioxide inside the water, you have to have a lot of carbon dioxide there. So the more carbon dioxide you put above the water, the more of it's going to work its way into the water and you're going to get more dissolved and you get more carbonated water. But what has that done to the the chemistry of the water? I think we need to find out by mixing it with your cabbage solution, don't we? Yeah, we'll try the second glass. Wow. Well, it obviously spluttered a bit to begin with, but the colour difference is is really obvious. It's it's pink. Yes, and like litmus, if red cabbage water is pink, that means it's acidic. So the carbon dioxide solution is obviously acidic. So not only have we made this water fizzy, but we've also made it more acidic. What's actually happened? 
Well, there's actually another reaction going on here. The H2CO3, which we created by reacting carbon dioxide and water together, can also split up to form H pluses, two H pluses, and CO3 minus, two minus. These H pluses um, then stick to water molecule to form HCO plus, and these hydronium ions, as they are called, will then float around in the water. And if you've got something with lots of H plus, lots of hydronium ions, then it's an acid. So how does the change in acidity lead to the change in colour? Well, some of these hydrogen ions will then go and react with the anthocyanin dye molecules from the red cabbage, and they change its colour. And so we get a change from this sort of inky blue through to this girly pink. Yeah, that's pretty much it. There's also CO2 in the atmosphere. In fact, we hear a great deal about how much CO2 we have put into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. So does this mean that the same thing happens in our rivers, our lakes and in the sea? Yes, and it always has done. Um, The carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will dissolve in water, make it slightly acidic. This acid will actually dissolve things like limestone. So water running through limestone will tend to dissolve it and it creates caves. But is it a problem, therefore, that we've been putting more and more CO2 into the atmosphere? As you said, the more there is above the water, the more there is that can get in. Yeah, that's right. And In fact, the oceans are a major sink of carbon dioxide. It just dissolves in them. And as it dissolves, it will make them more acidic. Now, there has been some research which says that the more acidic the oceans get, the more carbon dioxide that's dissolved in them can start causing problems for creatures with shells made out of essentially limestone calcite. So things like oysters and, say, corals. So even if you don't think that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is going to warm up the world, it's certainly going to do things to the pH of the oceans. So that's certainly something to think about. Thanks very much, Dave. Well, we are going to put some videos and some pictures of this onto the website at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. So if you want to have a go at home with your soda stream or your 70s soda siphon, then please give it a go and let us know what you find. We'll be back with more Kitchen Science next week. So making water fizzy by adding carbon dioxide also makes it more acidic, as proven by that stinky red cabbage water. And that's the same thing that's going on in our oceans, and it's really threatening the world's shellfish and coral reefs and all sorts of creatures that are very important. There are pictures and video online now at www.thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. So go and check it out. Why not? And even if you don't have a soda stream or any red cabbage, then there's bound to be an experiment there that you'd like to try with things you've got lying around at home and next week Dave will be live in the studio with another experiment that you can try out at home well that's all we've got time for this week on the show many thanks to Anthony Challoner and David Aldridge for joining us especially David for bringing his mitten crab that was the cutest thing I've seen and unfortunately I wasn't allowed to eat it uh, thanks also to our production team Diana O'Carroll Mira Senthalingham Tom Simpkins who was doing the desk tonight and Ben Valsler and finally thanks to all of you at home for listening next week we're going through our mailbox of great science questions seeing if we can find the answers for you and if you want to hear your questions answered on the show then get them into chris at thenakedscientist.com if you'd like to hear the show again or catch up with any old shows you've missed you can download the naked scientist podcast for free free no money at all from www.thenakedscientist.com slash podcasts so have a great week and goodbye from us the naked scientist podcast comes to you from cambridge university and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Listener.